Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. The summer of 1986 was a wild time in Niagara Falls. Since the 1880s, tourists have flocked to the falls, and enterprising folks found new ways to capitalize on those visitors. And in 1986... It got ugly, according to an article from that year in the New York Times, titled, Violent Battle for Tourists in Niagara. Are you ready for this? Not only were tourism companies painting over official signs to the falls, like that guy at the beginning of Bedknobs and Broomsticks painting over the signposts in case the Nazis drop in, but they were setting up fake tourist information booths to direct tourists where they wanted them to go. But then those fake information booths were getting straight up firebombed. That's right, rival tourism companies were tossing Molotov cocktails and detonating pipe bombs at each other's setups. One independent owner, whose stand was pipe-bombed, worked summers in Niagara and the rest of the year as a teacher. He said, I'm just a little guy. I think I got caught in a crossfire. A tour bus full of tourists at the time was pelted by rocks, smashing the windows, and one of the big player tour operators' homes was shot at repeatedly. But despite the gang warfare on the American side, people still came to Niagara. What was it that was attracting people to the falls? Was it the romance of the themed motels, the awesome power of nature, the numerous choices for entertainment and dining once you're done being awed by the power of nature? Or was it that you might witness some mind-numbing stunt by people who walked a thin line between bravery and insanity? The first stunt was in 1859, when a French performer who went by the name Blondin walked a tightrope across the 975-foot-wide Niagara Gorge just below the falls. And then the stunts got weirder and more extreme, with people strapping themselves into various contraptions, sometimes with their pets, one guy went over with a turtle, and sometimes with their lovers. And some of them didn't survive. But people still did it. In 1986, two college kids needed to be rescued while clinging to a rock feet from going over the falls when their homemade fiberglass barrel took on water almost immediately. And famed French stunt artist Philippe Petit, you know, the guy who tightrope walked between the Twin Towers, finally achieved his dream of recreating Blondin's stunt for a documentary about Niagara Falls stunt performers. He had applied for a permit to walk across the top of the falls in the 70s and was denied. So this was a big deal for him. A dream achieved, if you will. Dreaming big and pursuing. That's the lesson here. Blondin's antics also serve as a point of inspiration for the young protagonist in our first film. Although both our movies today involve blind faith, stick to and yes, just a little bit of shenanigans. But let's start with painful-looking stunts, baby Keanu Reeves, and tragedy compiled on tragedy in a Flashdance ripoff. Let's talk flying, a.k.a. Teenage Dream. Cam, do you want to kick us off? Dream to Believe. Yes, I was going to say. Is the other title. Don't get in. Yeah, don't get into the a.k.a. Yeah. Because there's a fourth one as well. 
Flying, yes. Flying is a gymnastics film from 1986, uh, the, the real uh, year where the gymnastics <laughs> boom peaked in cinema. Uh, it is Canadian. Um, and yeah, it is uh, a fun 80s confection. Uh, you may have re- thought and realized correctly that due to the many, many titles, this is a film which has <laughs> fallen between the cracks of copyright and uh, is available out there it is not on hollywood suite because it cannot really be properly licensed which we tried we did try yes, and unfortunately we, we into it. it's in horrible mostly it's in horrible quality for yeah, where you can watch it the highest quality you can get it is vhs I, I do want to mention this is also a hong kong golden harvest co-pro what? which is another layer of why the rights are going to be so messed up added onto the layer of this is a fantastic soundtrack and I can't even imagine they paid for the rights for this music. Yeah, yeah Golden Harvest we should too. say did a bunch of Jackie Chan's early stuff a lot of Hong Kong action like that's like the early early years of that kind of cinema. And they, they had a big yeah. presence in Canada in the 80s. Yeah, and a lot of Montreal deadly yeah, eyes. Yeah, deadly eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it was more giant rat movies. I, th- I think this is probably the first Golden Harvest gymnastic exploitation film. I'm willing I mean I don't know a lot about Golden oh. Harvest but I don't know yeah. of another Canadian Canadian co-pro no. they did for gymnastics. Yes, definitely their first Canadian <laughs> gymnastics, all of these. But yeah, um, I mean, I guess, so I'll start off maybe before we get into the plot, just talking about gymnastics in the 1980s and why there is a brief kind of three-year gymnastics boom. Uh, it's a big time for gymnastics, which may be forgotten. Uh, and it's a big time for gymnastics kind of just because the sport of gymnastics was reaching new heights, no pun intended. Uh, uh, you had uh, in 1976, I believe, is when Kurt Thomas... Uh, breaks a bunch of records for gymnastics. Uh, 1980, so it's also a weird time for the Olympics. It's tumultuous. 1980, the Olympics are in Moscow. All the Americans boycott it. 1984, they're in Los Angeles. Uh, it's very pro-America, and all the Soviets boycott it. But throughout this, you've got Kurt Thomas, Nadia Komanichi, who becomes the per- first perfect 10 uh, gymnast to get all 10s, and then Mitch Gaylord in 1984, who kind of leads the gymnastics team, who is kind of the America team, the the team that everybody loved. Uh, this leads to most of these people getting films. Kurt Thomas is in Jim Cotta, the kind of classic gymnast turned uh, karate man. Uh, Mitch Gaylord is in American Anthem this year in 1986. Uh, it is, it's pretty much what you would expect from an American version of this movie. And they wisely make Mitch Gaylord like the third lead, but he's a very handsome young man. So, uh, if you see the cover of it, it's just him with his shirt off. Uh, and then of course you've got a non-gymnast John Stamos playing gymnast turned spy in <laughs> Never Too Young to Die alongside Vanity also in Vanity, oh, man, I can't wait till we get to a Vanity movie. I want to go down her rabbit hole well, so bad. Never Too Young to Die. Look it up. Uh, he fights Gene Simmons. What? Uh, oh man. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think Timothy Dalton is his father, maybe. Anyway, over in Canada, we have the Flying. Uh, flying is the story of a young woman uh, named Robin, uh, who is new to town. Uh, she is kind of a, a quote-unquote mousy nerd, though you would never know from her being played by the beautiful Olivia Dabo. <laughs> uh, but she is uh, somebody who helps out at the gym, but gets picked on a lot. Uh, and she is kind of in love with the hot gymnast guy. Uh, but meanwhile, there's a mouthy nerd who's in love with her, played by Keanu Reeves. Uh, and secretly at night, she does gymnastics. Uh, we don't really know why, what's happening, what's up. 
but slowly it's revealed that essentially she was a big gymnast and then her father died in a car accident which also hurt her leg <laughs> and she's been a little afraid to get back on the horse uh with the encouragement of her mother uh keanu reeves and just pure spite against the uh <laughs> snobby bitches on the gymnastics team she decides to return uh and uh thanks to also the push of uh her coach played by rita tushingham who kind of supports her kind of doesn't support yeah, her not so much uh, not so much uh she uh Ends up being in the Nationals, I believe, or the regional competition in Niagara Falls, uh, where things come to a head in a insane climax where a million things happen in the last 10 minutes of this film. <laughs> and then she does some gymnastics. And uh, yeah, and throughout it, she's having this... It's it's interesting because the romance is kind of just the first two acts, and then they're just a solid couple for the rest of the movie. Uh, so Keanu's around uh, being charming. Well, and also her father dying means her mother's remarried a very evil dry cleaner <laughs> who basically forces oh this woman who has cancer, it sweatshop. seems like, in a yeah. sweatshop and then kind of beats up his stepdaughter multiple times, including at one of yeah. the gymnastics meets. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. really brutal. Well, it's interesting because Paul Lynch goes out of his way to say he doesn't write anything. He's like, I am not a writer, I am not an actor. So that's interesting. But I think probably what drew Paul Lynch to this film is Paul Lynch does very, like, blue-collar. It's kind of like what he's known for early in his career is these, like, blue-collar kind of, down, like, salt-of-the-earth people movies. So I feel like the stuff with the abusive stepfather... I mean, also, I'm just like, somebody explained to me the story where she was in San Francisco and her mom and her father dies and then she falls in love with a Buffalo-based mm -hmm. dry cleaner <laughs> and moves her family mm -hmm. across town. Because in spite of this being Canadian, it's set in Buffalo, yeah. which is a wise Toronto it's, switch. It's very Toronto. Like, you're on yes. Young Street with Sam the Record Man, like the neon signs. It's a really, actually, if you're into Toronto locations in the 80s, this yes. is kind of your film. It's also filmed in Niagara Falls, of course. But uh... And then her best friends... Before she can really, because oh, yes. she's the new kid, is a security guard and his cousin, who's the bus driver. Yes. And they support her gymnastics dream. The security guard is a security guard for a warehouse. And so he opens the warehouse for her and brings a boombox and, like, in a very foot loose um, situation, like <laughs> that Kevin Bacon sequence where he's dancing. We get yeah. Olivia Dabo doing that to, like, this insane security guard dancing to it like just rocking Smoking out weed too. it's really fun <laughs> like that's the most fun this film has I that think. is dennis simpson from polka dot door yeah. no it's not yes, it is yeah you didn't know that <laughs> no it's not yes yeah. it is polka dot dancing into simpson. your heart how did i not notice those moves those <laughs> hips of course it is Oh my that god. That actually was my oh favorite my sequence of that and I watched it with my partner Andy and he was like, "Why is all that gauze there?" And that seems like a fire hazard. <laughs> but it is. Yeah. But it's fun to yeah. watch. It, I mean, it's obviously not her. We'll get into the controversy of who the the double sure. is. Paul Lynch for people who aren't familiar with his work in Canada, you've probably seen one of his films. Mm -hmm. Uh he's mostly known for genre movies. Uh one of my personal favorite being Prom Night. Um he also did a wrestling movie, the very early in his career that I love called Blood and Guts. That one's wild. Um, but lots and lots of like television, lots of mm -hmm. um, you know, you look at like Poltergeist, the le legacy, all that kind of stuff. He's super versatile. Like, Very much so. I think he's British born, came to Canada later 
um, very versatile Canadian director. And so flying being in his filmography along with Prom Night and Blood and Guts and Humongous is oh, yeah, humongous. interesting. <laughs> yeah, he's a, I mean, he's a very interesting guy. He said he was very uh, inspired by Sidney J. Fury, another Canadian oh, who yeah. kind of worked through Britain. I see that. And I guess Sidney J. Fury and Kubrick both started as uh, photojournalists. So he did that. And then I guess you used to do kind of like if you think of, you know, old life magazines and stuff, yeah. you would do like photo essays. I know and he, he actually... was a cartoonist for the Toronto yeah, Star. Yeah, for the Toronto Star, too. Yeah. So he has all these weird things. But I guess he got to adapt a photo essay into a CBC TV movie. Uh-huh. And that kind of started him on his way. And he interestingly talks about a period that I didn't really know where I guess there's kind of a sweet spot between uh, the tax shelter and... 1986 which really ended in 1984 where there was tax credits and also the cbc had a lot of flexibility Mm -hmm. where he said they funded a lot of independent films um so i think that you see he he shifted a lot to television essentially was what he said when he uh when that dried up yeah i mean he's a a gentleman in his 70s if not his early 80s at this point he's still with us but he's someone i've always been very curious about because he's a name from your a name I'm familiar with, but I've never seen a lot of interviews with him or like, or not recently, or like an actual look at his pretty extensive filmography. Um, And maybe part of that is some of his films, I mean, Hollywood Suite has had prom night for years. I mean, we always have kind of prom night. We love it. Uh, But a lot of his other films are very difficult to track down. Not as difficult as flying is in a good copy, but like, they're just not available. No, it looks mm-hmm. like, according to his IMDb, it looks like he's still working. He has something in pre-production. Great. So we are very pro yeah, people continuing yeah. to and work. And there's a very good, I will say, if you go through his Wikipedia, there's an interview with the blog, which is quite charming. And mm-hmm. also he did a, a great interview in the 80s uh, with Cinema Canada, uh, right, which you can yeah. find the archives at Athabasca University. Um, yeah. And they're pretty interesting. He's he's very frank. I, I've never read a lot of Cinema Canada, but man, uh, the interviewers are very frank and he's very <laughs> frank uh, about his career. I, I mean, I think one of the things we should probably disclaim for this particular episode is both in this case with Flying and the next film we're going to talk about. Neither are masterpieces. I think it's pretty rare that we've had an episode where both films are objectively bad films. However... These are fun. Yes. Flying yeah. is so fun. It's so I'm not fun. saying it's, is very fun. I think it's, yeah. it's worth watching. I'm not going to say it's like, when I was trying to rate it out of five on my letterbox, I was like very confused about what to do in this situation. The qualification of this yeah. is one of those party movies, right? Like you toss it yeah. on with a bunch of people, you have a few substances, and you just enjoy it, right? Like you're not going to yeah. be sobbing into a tissue box at any point. You will but probably be laughing. Not so many substances that you then would try to like get on a do pommel a horse <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. it should be noted that if you get too intense there is my favorite part of this film when i knew it would be classic is the the flip battle where <laughs> one of them goes so i can flip circles around you at, like anytime, a drive-in, anywhere right? at a yeah. <laughs> they're just flipping in a, in a parking lot so don't get so high that you and your friends challenge each other to flip <laughs> down the street you're a joke everyone on the team knows it we can flip circles around you anytime anywhere you're at nothing crazy oh olivia dabo flips over a corvette (laughs) yeah something like that like at the end of her like flip sequence uh to like the whole high school kind of cheering it's pretty it's pretty adorable i really like this film i actually also would state and i know i always say it's like i'm a broken record but i wish i could see this in its proper format the way with proper Mm -hmm. color with like what i watched was basically blood red uh a youtube video like to see this on the big screen would be nice in like a 
a proper edition, I, I would appreciate that. So if the, if you're like a home media person who's got like a small boutique, um, <laughs> you know, DVD or Blu-ray operation, I feel like you could get away with doing this for free. Oh, <laughs> yes. Find, the, find a print, digitize it, figure out where the negative is. Who knows? So this is, of course, simultaneously trying to um, use the gymnastics craze of the 80s as well as the flash dance. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. That's, but, but I believe that, like, the people who are creating this kind of elevate it to something else that becomes its own little world thing. So we already talked about mm-hmm. how Paul Lynch is a genre director. So he actually brings a lot of action, a lot of mood. Um, there's a lot of stuff that kind of, of sex. A lot of sex. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a very sexy movie, it's surprisingly. Super sexy, yeah. yeah, it's good. Yeah, not, but not too crude, I would say, too. Like, it's classy. I would think that there would be more, like, in locker rooms and stuff if this was a screw. No, balls, it's not like know? a shower scene. It's not no. like that. It's not the sex scene that you have between Olivia Dabo and Keanu Reeves is actually really sweet and yeah. intimate. Where it gets a little crude for me is, and and this is a film that is a montage a minute, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's a workout montage in a home gym, (laughs) and the camera is between Olivia Dabo's legs as she's doing the presses, and it feels, so she's like opening her legs wide, closing them, opening, it goes on a little too long. I'm kind of like, mm. Yeah. (laughs) It's a little exploitation-y. It's very similar to the workout scene from Flashdance, right? And it feels like Mm -hmm. they're, like, um, soundtrack-wise, it sounds like they're also trying to launch, like, Irene Cara level of stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas the music very much sounds like it's out of the raccoons, which I like a lot, because that is I like. I feel like I love the music. I do! I'm not, I don't yeah. say that in a bad thing. I think the pop okay. music from the raccoons was excellent. I'm just trying to make it all Canadian-y. I mean, for people who might not be in Canada or don't know the raccoons, Google that theme song, and yeah, it is true. like our national pride. Yes. <laughs> we are referencing a lot of random Canadian. Yeah. Sorry, guys, if you're not from Canada. Thank you so uh, much. If you're not of a certain age from Canada, even. Uh, yeah, and I mean, the uh, you you made a note, Becky, that a lot of this music is from the Lydia Taylor band. And looking mm-hmm. on, number one, look up those songs because they are a delight. Yep. Mm-hmm. And number two, I loved that uh, there's a comment on one of her songs that says, I used to DJ <laughs> Shakers on Queen Street, which is a strip club. Shakers, and Lydia yes! Taylor has a song called Bitch. Yes, she does, and it's and vicious. Like, that was the, I looked that at was it. the number one strip club song in 1989 <laughs> oh to 1990. And when you listen to it, you're like, "Yeah, it's it's like pour some sugar on me or something." It's great. Yeah, the soundtrack, and I, I you know, it's maybe something that could be licensed now. Like, I, I want to encourage someone to mm. go back. We, this happens, right? We encounter films that fall out of copyright all the time because of the music. There is an opportunity to go back, raise the money license it yeah. properly and then release this like please someone do it and Keanu Reeves is very charming I think Lilith so Dub is very cute. I think Paul Lynch is very good at like I actually weirdly think considering Prom Night is kind of his big film I think that this is a much is much more accomplished filmmaking than Prom oh, Night I feel like this is a much tighter movie mm-hmm. he does a wonderful job of visually kind of referencing you know Flashdance and and all those movies it's very neon very fun weird fashion the, the weird she she gets tricked into wearing a costume to a not costume party <laughs> and it's the craziest damn costume you've ever seen I'm like, what is I she? tried to convince Brendan Ross of Neon Dreams <laughs> Cinema Club that this would be a good candidate although I don't know what version you show because yeah, format. it's but uh, this this is a this is a very fun like neo noirish kind of look that they are going for that mm. they pull off really well. Oh uh, yeah, especially the Footloose that doesn't. Yeah, the sweatshop's crazy. <laughs> I, so dark and creepy. I know when we were researching this a while ago to 
be part of the TV show of a year in film. And it is slightly referenced in that this is Keanu Reeves's on-screen feature film debut. It's one of four films he did in 1986. Um, Everyone talks about Youngblood, but it's actually flying where he gets this kind of big role. Um, In doing that research like a while ago, I did find something that went through every film location for flying. And then I cannot find it for the life of (sighs) me now. And I was like, I knew where the dry cleaners was. I knew where that flip off thing was i don't know where all this stuff is and i want to know so if if listeners know can they email the podcast and let me know where that all is where did the mitsubishi regional gymnastics championship (laughs) (laughs) so uh, let's talk about keanu just for a second because he is still Mm -hmm. playing keanu as keanu plays keanu especially young keanu um and i've seen a lot of people compare what he's doing to ducky in pretty in pink which is the same year but i actually think he's a proto lloyd dobler why are you up so late? Got a detention from Miss Donna Bukowski. Oh, not again. Yeah, she said she didn't want me to wear clothes like this in her class. So I, uh, took them off. <laughs> oh, you didn't? Yeah, right down to my underwear. <laughs> Miss Bukowski turned this really neat shade of purple. It's kind of artistic. Yeah, I mean, he's got the weird ducky... Aesthetic. I want his opening jacket, the jacket that his teacher did not want him to wear. I'm like, I want that thing, yes. and I would wear it. Which everywhere. I believe was a, his jacket. Of course, he, those are all his own out, clothes. Like weird Asian lining. <laughs> I mean, he also has that great like tessellated rabbits shirt, which is very good. <laughs> but he's yeah, it's weird because he's a bit of yeah, yeah. He's like an Anthony Michael Hall almost, where he's cracking a lot of jokes, joking with everybody, really getting on the nerves of the lunch lady. <laughs> But, and uh, the, the snobby but, gymnasts who yeah not the snobby gymnasts and it's interesting because he gets a little burnt by olivia dabo but he kind of waits for her he knows that she'll eventually come around to his style and then also i, yeah, I wrote down that he he does a, a canada only prank where he takes his mini milk carton and puts it on the mean girl's chair <laughs> and then goes i thought cats like milk when she sits on <laughs> to which i'm like jesus oh, yeah. i love it i love it so much Oh, what's the matter, man? I thought cats like milk. <laughs> we talked about genre filmmaking with Paul Lynch. Uh, have a look at John Shepard's IMDb, who wrote this. Mm-hmm. Um, he has mm-hmm. written a ton of MacGyver, so he's used mm-hmm. to this kind of like, here's the like lesson of the week, which this very much is. It covers every possible teen issue that you possibly could. But this also led me down a rabbit hole to see that there is a 1994 movie where MacGyver hunts for the lost treasure of Atlantis. I this mean, is like whole new levels of things for me. God, I love IMDb. Yeah, and it's worth also saying uh, we uh, we haven't touched on it yet, but this due to a weird this weird rights issue and and Golden Harvest attempting to release this themselves even yeah. though they weren't distributors. This gets released the same year as another Paul Lynch, John Shepard, Olivia Dabo collaboration called Bullies, which is like a exploitation rape revenge movie. Um which is more well known, strangely, because it got an actual American release. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know which is. It's just. What do you want? What? Which do you prefer? This was at the Cannes market in 1986, okay. and according to Paul Lynch, it had like a pretty good reception. Now, I'm not saying it's. When I say Cannes market, it means there's a market where things are for sale. It's not in competition at Cannes. Okay. It wasn't going up against like Denny Arcon and <laughs> Decline of the American Empire. That would be very unusual. Um, so it was part of the market, and there was multiple offers to buy it for international distribution. And Golden Harvest, I think, made the wrong decision to basically distribute it themselves, which they couldn't do. And so it got no publicity, no marketing, and clearly no copyright or legal love. Um, And that's why we're in this situation. Whereas if it had been, you know, let's say it was bought by Fox the way the next film 
Canadian mm-hmm. film produced by CBC we're going to talk about was it would have been released theatrically um, and it kind of just didn't and it's 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 unfortunate the surprise for me is I wasn't particularly familiar with Olivia Debeau but I should be she should be a star of course like, she should be looking yeah. at yeah. her IMDb and looking at like all the opportunities she had to be that and like just seeing what she's capable of um, I mean this is not the role for her physically as she is a very well endowed woman and gymnast yes. tend yeah, not to be yeah. <laughs> As a woman but... with large breasts, I can say that we don't balance well. No, <laughs> so no nor do we swing totally particularly well. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, she looks great in leotard, so that's helpful. But I'm I'm yeah. really surprised that she didn't take off. I mean, I think she, she I think did. she is to a well. certain extent, because especially in the Wonder Years yeah. Yeah. Uh, was very big for her. But I also think, like, I, I mean... Uh, to me, her best role is probably in Kicking and Screaming, uh, the early Noah Baumbach mm-hmm. movie. But she's she was in Conan the Destroyer, which mm-hmm. is pretty huge. She Super was in, young. And Bolero. Uh, yeah, and she was um, she's in the remake of La Femme Nikita, which was pretty big, uh, No Point of No Return. So she kind of had that like late 80s, early 90s boom. And now she's actually like pretty huge as a voiceover person. Yeah. yeah. Inter- I mean, just fascinating career in general. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. And, and the interesting thing is Paul Lynch also kind of agrees. Uh, there's a movie I want to dig up. He did a TV movie called Really Weird Tales with most of the SCTV people oh uh, that apparently Olivia Dabo is in. <laughs> and, and he's like, that was my gift to Olivia Dabo <laughs> was this funny role. I, um, but yeah. I think she's kind of comparable to Cynthia Dale, who yes. we're going to talk about in a minute, where it's like there's a very niche international audience for her that found her um, highly eroticized. <laughs> and like, I've met a lot of men who are like in love with Cynthia Dale, and I've always like, American men. I've always found it really interesting. And then I've also met a ton of people who are like, oh my God, Olivia Dabo. And it, yeah, I don't know. She just never took off. I mean, it's almost yeah. like she was well, too erotic. She, yeah, she's the kind of person where she like, I think she really rises to the occasion of whatever thing she's in. And she just wasn't given enough good opportunities to be good, you know? Because when she's in good things, she's great. I mean, it's interesting because we kind of talked about Jennifer Beals that way in um, Flashdance. It's not Mm -hmm. that. I mean, Flashdance was so much bigger (laughs) as a cultural phenomenon than this film. But I do wonder if something like this got her kind of shittily typecast or just sort of made people not take her seriously. And this movie treats her a lot better than Flashdance treats her. Yes. Well, this is one of those movies that I am not entirely sure who the original intended audience is because it feels like it should be a sleepover movie, but then you have that like really tender, erotic sex scene and there's a bunch of other stuff kind of going on. And then like you have how brutal all the after school special stuff is. Um, But then like there's the really cool scenes with like all the dancing and things, which are also eroticized and very clearly um, he's, he's getting stoned. So it's like, who is this for like what's the intended audience cool team <laughs> yeah it's definitely co- i could see it looking like it's aimed at prepubescent girls but it really shouldn't be <laughs> like although well, they're probably still they probably oh no question but no question like someone rented this for like a bunch of girls to watch at a slumber party and we're like and we're turning this <laughs> But that's the glory of the nineteen yes. early nineteen nineties and nineteen eighties summer yeah, parties. We were shown things that our parents did not pay attention <laughs> to. Look, she's flipping. Did anyone else cringe when she's doing those flips on the bars and she's smacking her groin on the on the bar and then flips back up? And I'm like, I don't like it because they keep zooming in on that part. I don't care for it. I I there was a cringeworthy, and I'm still recommending this film highly. <laughs> but there's a cringeworthy um, section for me, which is how this film treats eating Ooh, disorders yeah, yeah, and sports. Yeah, yeah. 
it ain't good because one of her one friend is basically taking steroids and diet pills her dad prescribes them to her so she can lose weight for the competition she passes out knocks herself out gets kicked off the team and the coach is just screaming at her like no empathy no compassion whatsoever for this poor girl she's a teenager she's a high school student and then the coach is like where did you get these pills and she's like my dad's a doctor he gave yeah. them to me like that's the kind of pressure they're under and i just felt that that was treated I'm glad it's in the film because that's a very accurate depiction of exactly what these girls would yeah. be going through. But it's it's a should have been a little more nuanced, maybe. But it's also yeah. well, and of course, like I mean, not only does her father die in a car crash, her mother has this bananas monologue about how she is okay with her husband dying because her daughter will live to see her dreams, which is like okay, that's mm-hmm. wild. Um, but then her mother dies, and then I guess mm-hmm. she goes and lives with Keanu, but it, it seems like it's a mm-hmm. short term arrangement because his parents are out of town. So who knows what's going to happen to her next? She's basically homeless. She's also living with her friend who is. The, the rich one, I just one. Mentioned yeah, yeah. that is very wealthy and has this mansion and uh, is having okay. Yeah, man, 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 there's just so many weird things about this movie. It is like every five minutes something utterly tragic happens to this character. Um, it's actually kind of unbelievable. Like that is a a little bit of a narrative deficit, <laughs> I would say, where it's just like at a certain point when when her evil stepfather, after her mother has died, shows up at her meet in Niagara Falls to like basically beat her yeah. up. I was just like, good God. Yeah, I, well, I mean, that last 10 minutes is crazy because number one, you get the monologue about Blondie. <laughs> that is in the last 10 yeah, minutes yes. of the film, the inspirational monologue. The drunk stepfather Given by the bus driver, up. I yeah, believe. Yeah, the bus driver. Blondie didn't think about winning and he wasn't worried about beating anybody. When he was doing all those amazing things, do you know the one thing he was thinking about? Just getting his ass across the that's all. Getting his ass across the fall. And then she does her routine. It's it's wild. I also like that the, there's the character of, you know, again, I think the Paul Lynch thing, the weird nuance thing, is there is this abusive stepfather, but the mom seems to genuinely like him. And also, he has a stepdaughter that's, like, slutty but nice to the daughter. Like, the daughter's kind of mean to her, but then she's Not at first, cool. but then she's, like, very supportive. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like a reverse and, Cinderella. Uh, protective of yeah. her. Yeah, gives her the magic uh, leotard that her mother made for her. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't help but think of, um, you know, that Chemical Brothers music video that Spike Jones directed? Mm-hmm. I want to say it's, like, 97, 98. And it stars Sofia Coppola as who was like dating Spike Jones at the time and before she became a director uh, as a gymnast. And Sofia Coppola really was a gymnast, um, tiny little person, makes sense. And uh, I watched I watched that video and I compared it to the the last sequence, like the climax of flying. It's almost shot for shot. And I always thought I never knew what the referent was. And I, I wonder if Sofia Coppola knew this film really well as a gymnast. Like, how could you not? Because she has her teammates be really mean to her like her own teammates are basically sabotaging her and she's got an ankle injury which i know is also a reference to that famous olympics yeah. that uh carry something or rather yeah carry strike i don't know I, I think maybe spike jones and sofia coppola were watching uh were watching flying in order to do this electro <laughs> the chemical brothers for it's called electro bank the, the, music the other video. thing i think is fascinating with this is how low the stakes are and the fact that it's not even like a national competition it's like a semi-regional Mm-hmm. No, it's Buffalo, Fort Erie, and yeah, it's like a se- it's a semi-regional. <laughs> Fort, if you Listen, know this region, if, you're, uh, Fort if both close. of your parents are dead and you maybe don't have anywhere to live anymore, take the win. Uh, yeah, the, you'll well, take the Buffalo Regional Competition <laughs> gymnastics one. You don't get any money. You don't get any money. Yeah, because <laughs> and the gold isn't even real gold. Oh, God. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's just the the dream, right? That's why this the the one of these titles is uh, dream, dream to, to believe. believe. Oh, I don't think you need to think of why that is. Okay, last question before we go further. Do I eat hot dogs weird at stands? Because I don't see any reason why she glares at Keanu Reeves in that moment where he's it's, like doing a normal hot dog, and I, she's like, I what watched are you doing? it based on your hot dog questions, and I think it's because Keanu is purposefully piling on more and more condiments just to bother her. Oh, it's okay. flirting. Yeah. Is it flirting via hot dog condiments? <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's goofing off and she's, you know, the beginning where they're courting, she's like not into how goofy he is. And then she kind of gets down to his level and gets super goofy yeah. and they meet in the middle. It's and worth it's saying, sorry. Olivia Zabo, you may also remember as the Lady Garth from Wayne's World 2. So <laughs> she's right, down right. to be goofy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Former guest Emily Gagne. I'm glad she's going to be very happy to <laughs> that reference because she's also known as Lady Garth. Yeah. I think that's where we have to have to move on to our next movie. So when we come back, it's going to be ripped Nicolas Cage and a puppy named Rowboat. Is Rowboat a good for, name for a puppy? Debatable. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The opening scrawl of The Boy in Blue reads, Before baseball, football, or soccer, one sport alone captured the imaginations of both rich and poor. Sculling. The masses turned out by the thousands to cheer their heroes as they battled on the water, while gamblers won and lost fortunes on their outcome. Having now watched an entire film about one of the world's greatest scholars, Ned Hanlon, I do not think that the scrawl is entirely accurate. Or if it is, it's simply stating, man, thank God other sports came along. This film, however, is utterly fascinating. It has fresh-off Heavenly Bodies topless Cynthia Dale, a mustache-twirling Christopher Plummer, and would be totally disposable if it weren't for the glorious slang and the intense and anachronistic Nicolas Cage performance. Alicia. You're such a cage head. Let's talk the boy in blue and how freaking ripped he is. Before we get to that, which I will go into extensively, <laughs> I do want to mention I did some research on like, because we're talking about 1880s yeah. sports. Mm-hmm. So 19th century sports. Um, and, you know, Ned Hanlon, this is a film about Ned Hanlon. And I'm sorry, this is so Toronto centric. But for people who know Toronto on the island, we have Hanlon's Point. Um, this is partially named for him. I'll go into that in a second. But uh, I want to point out what the top sports were around the 1860s when Ned Hanlon was born. He's born in 1855. Snowshoe racing. Okay. Sure. Uh, boxing was considered too dainty. It wasn't really <laughs> wow. like a thing. But bare knuckle, bare knuckle boxing sure. for prize money was. I was going to ask what they were doing in snowshoe racing. Were they like allowed to cut each other's hamstrings? <laughs> <laughs> like that. How this yeah. 
It's possible. Uh, and then fat man races. What? Great. Never heard of it. Fat man, man races. races. Fat man. I hear you. I hear you. I am processing. I mean, if Weird. anything, I'm shocked that fat man races has not lasted. <laughs> so, I mean, they have if you watched the Spike Network. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I need but, a moment. Um, so, when I understand why you're questioning this opening scroll, Becky, but I want to emphasize that truly from my research, which was a CBC article and then knowing that a very close friend of mine uh, curated an exhibition on 19th century sport in Canada, the Toronto Reference Library, which is how I discovered this film, um, that truly sculling was the national pastime. It was written about in newspapers. It was a big (sighs) deal. It was was the UFC of Canada and the world. And Ned Hanlon, the, the champion sculler, was truly the Canadian celebrity of the late 19th century. His name was known more than anyone else's around the world, um, especially in the UK and uh, Europe. So the scroll, to my perspective, is accurate. Now, that is the only thing accurate. Yeah. About okay, great. Part. I was worried about this. I'm like, yeah. I know nothing about Ned Hanlon aside oh, from the fact I've had a no, good time well, at least on the I can tell you how much of this film is pure lies. All right. Well, why, yeah, don't, we, why lies, don't we have but... a little myth, myth versus fact uh, off whenever you're ready, Alicia? So, Ned Hanlon, it's true that he was a champion sculler. He was also, there's rumors that he was a bootlegger. So, the reason Hanlon's Point in uh, Toronto is named Hanlon's Point is actually not because of Ned Hanlon, it's because of his father who had a hotel. And so it was Hanlon's Point. Now, the reason it's still called Hanlon's Point and the reason why there's a topless statue at the ferry dock is because, of course, Ned Hanlon. He used the sliding seat. He, he pioneered the sliding seat for the first time and popularized it. Before that, the seats didn't slide in rowboats. And so with this kind of engineering feat, he was able to gain a lot of momentum. Um, there's a, there, You see in the film, Boy in Blue, that there is uh, like an old man who designs this seat. And at some point, he looks at Ned Hanlon and he goes, Slides like butter, boy. Slides, boy. Slides, slides like butter. (laughs) This is the most homoerotic film. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they know. But anyway, the sliding seat kind of puts him, you know, a step ahead. He's called the boy in blue because he was kind of known for his blue attire, like baby blue attire. um, Much as it's, I always thought it was because of his blue eyes because it's Nicolas Cage. Not, Mm. Not the case. They're not reading about me back home, are they? Absolutely. You're front page news. I've even given you a nickname. Yeah? The Blue Flash? Uh-oh. The boy in blue. That makes me sound like some kind of a fancy boy. What is most inaccurate about this? I mean, there's just so many inaccuracies. I would say that the biggest one is that Nicolas Cage refused to grow a mustache. And a simple Google search shows that not only yeah. were mustaches absolute musts during this time in the 1880s, 1890s, but Ned Hanlon had the fanciest mustache. Yes. It you seems could, like he was probably pride. known for his mustache. He was known yeah. for his mustache. He was also a, a gentleman who was 5'8", which is relative. Uh, of course, people were shorter at the turn of the century, but like 5'8 is pretty petite and only 150 pounds. Mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage is over six feet and the most ripped he's ever yeah. been in his life <laughs> yep. for this film. It I is just rewatched Con Air and he is more ripped in this than he is in Con Air. And- oh, Absolutely. yeah, 100%. Absolutely. This is like... And they shoot it like I watched Rambo 2 recently, and it's like that. It's Mm -hmm. like Terminator Rambo rip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's 21, so, I mean, he's prime, like, in terms of his... I mean, he's Nicolas Cage, so presumably he was trying to be a karate star or something. Well, now, here's, here's my question for you. How historically accurate is the sweatband? 
inaccurate. No sweatpants. Okay. <laughs> Just um, checking. No sweatpants at all. He is so every other character, Cynthia Dale's character, who he'll eventually marry, um, Christopher Plummer, who's this like skeezy, rich industrialist who bets on him. They are all in the 1880s. They're sort of speaking like the 1880s. The costumes are pretty good. They're wearing 1880s costumes. Nicholas Cage is in 1986. This is a time traveling film that just they haven't let us know that. Yeah. So they they cut out the part in the beginning where Nicholas Cage is Nicholas Cage from 1986, who's then transported to 1885 Toronto uh, to be amongst the other dandies. Don't do it, Maggie. He's a wet goose. Two hours to get dressed in the morning. He'd bore you silly. He's going bald, Maggie. He uses Dr. Morse's hair promoter. Bald and boring. Everything he says, everyone has a Canadian accent in this film except for him. Yeah. Although there is one time where he says A <laughs> in um, the tea room scene. But uh, he is not talking with an accent. He is not speaking as though it's 1890s. He is in 1986, and I want to applaud him for this. You can say this is the worst performance, and it definitely is, but there is something here that I'm just like, I guess he knew this was a terrible script, and he was just like, I'm just going to have fun with it. This is the year he did Peggy Sue Got Married, so it's a yeah. big year for him. Prior to this, he'd been known for um, I mean, Valley Girl, which we've talked about on season one of the show, and then, of course, he was in his uncle's films, Rumblefish and Cotton Club, but hadn't really gotten top billing, but he would this year, and I think it's certainly, yeah, this is this film is outrageous i this isn't mine but i what read one review that was like this is rocky meets a canadian heritage minute yeah and the acting yeah the acting style is about what you expect from a canadian heritage minute which (laughs) these are not well actors that appear in these i would like to point out how excited i am at the fact that they try to make it racy and saucy by putting as much 1800 slang as they possibly can there's a whole lot of buggers and blasts and bastards and and they say them with such venom also i would like us to bring back the uh the filthy urchin as a plot driver mister i know it's where you can get a boat yeah where cost you a dollar I mean, that's that like the the I read a contemporaneous review and they go pretty far into just fact checking this film <laughs> and being like Christopher Plummer, he plays an evil guy who tries to manipulate Ned Hanlon. It's like that man did not exist. Uh, David yeah. Naughton from American Werewolf in London is like his the sting style <laughs> scheming buddy who did not exist. They're yeah. like his wife was named that but I don't know that there was That's any sort of drama. Though. Yeah, and even the rum running apparently is like, he did it for his dad's hotel. He wasn't like a yeah. fun... Uh, and it was like, I, yeah. and I think it was not banned at the time in Canada. It literally was like his dad's no. hotel didn't have a liquor license, so he just needed to secretly get liquor. And I think also he was rowing probably to Rochester mm. um, across the water, across Lake Ontario. I don't know. I don't know my facts. I'm no. not, I'm probably saying something wrong too, but he might've been getting booze from the U S mm. which would have been better quality booze. Who knows? But to come back to Cynthia Dale's character and what you're talking about, Becky with like, Oh, all the like the 19th century slang at one point. So they have sex. Um, she's engaged with someone else. They have sex. <laughs> she says something like, Oh, I can't believe you compromised me. And then goes, compromise me again yeah <laughs> and th- this is again when we're talking about whether or not flying is a much of a like a horny exploitation movie the fact that Cynthia Dale has a horny. topless scene in this stupid movie this is, so is more exploitive than anything else yeah. Uh, yeah. and I mean it's, it's, it's super it. horny for Nick Cage don't get me wrong oh uh, he looks amazing and like I so I don't know about that haircut COVID, his body looks amazing haircut. 
pre-COVID days, so this was my first cancelled screening of the COVID era, was Boy in Blue. We were going to do the first theatrical screening of Boy in Blue in Toronto for Uncaged. Um, and so I was like super ready. I gave an interview about this film to Now Magazine that never got published. Like I was in it to win it. And in cutting the trailer for Uncaged, like that trailer was hinged on just all of the insane montage shots of Nicolas Cage, so sweaty, working out, looking gorgeous. Like, please, listeners, just Google Boy in Blue. Look at the poster. <laughs> look at like look at what they knew they had to market this film because this is a CBC produced film that somehow got theatrical distribution through Fox in the U.S. and I, is mind blowing to me. It, it, and it's Charles Jarrett, this British director who is known for like Anne of a Thousand Face, uh, Anne of a Thousand Days with Jean uh, Bujold and Richard Burton, was known for Mary Queen of Scots with Vanessa Redgrave, had been nominated, like not nominated himself for Oscars, but had directed actors who were then nominated for those performances. And then this is what he does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like just about everybody, with the exception I will give, I mean, Christopher Plummer, we will talk about this later. Christopher Plummer phones in nothing. Yeah. I don't think there is a performance in his career he has ever phoned in. Cynthia Dale, same thing, shows up. Mm-hmm. I would say just yeah. about all the actors I think Cynthia are Dale suffers a lot from the the whiplash of her scenes being with a guy who's not acting like he's in yeah. olden days at all. But I just want to point people towards this incredible Los Angeles Times article from 1986 where he is just about to blow up. This is the greatest introduction to any like puff piece about an actor I think I've ever heard. I think I know what you're going to talk about. It involves one of his pets. Nicolas Cage wanted to introduce his pet baby octopus to his visitors. Putting his hand into the aquarium, he dislodged the creature from behind a rock. Angry, it squirted ink over his fingers and shot away into another hiding place. He's mad at me now, said Cage. What a pity, just when we were beginning to get along. This man is a maniac. <laughs> like, this is just he had wild. a lot of eccentric pet stuff. Like there was definitely um, an iguana that he was constantly bringing onto set. I can't remember which film it was, but then this is also the LA Times article that is the first mention of Lewis, his cat that he did mushrooms with. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Well, this is like the article is interesting because it talks about Peggy Sue got married is just about to come out um, and Boy in Blue had just come out and he just writes Boy in Blue off like immediately. But he's like, Peggy Sue is going to be great. I'm really excited about Peggy Sue. So well, the interesting thing, too, is uh, like, I mean, it's not I think because uh, it's not commented on much contemporaneously but a few times when they were making the movie before people knew that it was not a good movie people were kind of uh, butthurt that this American guy was playing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ned Hanlon but yeah the, once it came out the the like again back in uh, Canadian cinema there's like a review that essentially says that this is, this is just like a mashup of like Rocky and Chariots of Fire and weirdly the sting <laughs> thrown in <laughs> Yeah. I think what's kind of fascinating to me about this film is that because the story of Ned Hanlon is actually kind of boring, they, yeah. of course, do their best to throw in every possible thing that could make this difficult, right? So that everybody is sabotaging each other. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of stuff in slow motion. There's something happening at one point with an oar, which I am unable to see, even though they keep, like, oh, zooming in on it. it's also incredibly poorly shot. I, I really <laughs> want to say. And I, I thought I was crazy. Like, I think it looks beautiful, yeah. but for how you would have to shoot sculling yeah they do not do that you have Mm -hmm. to you like to understand it you have to shoot it from the side yes because you're seeing the end of the boat and when it goes through and they shoot it almost all in close-up also i'm like fascinated that when you read about ned hanlon the thing he 
he really like even beyond the sliding seat he was the person that like popularized the sliding seat but he had a stroke that was unique to his competitors and they don't go into that at all nor bother explaining it so it's like that is the one thing that you could say is he had but you're right becky like essentially there's a this great review by uh j paul constable is like uh they make all these cliches like they try to make it more dramatic but just add cliche after cliche and it's pointless and he also has a very fascinating take where he says that like they rely very heavily on american sports movies cliches and essentially canada is not interested in that yeah he says like the great canadian sports movies are like the terry fox story which Mm -hmm. is quite dark and uh and he essentially says that uh what canada wants isn't rocky they want raging bull yes (laughs) you are correct like what they do here is to like Canada doesn't want an inspirational sports. It, if I had to picture what happened here, and this comes back to a point that you made, Becky, for uh, flying, I think the CBC had a butt ton of money, and this you know we're kind of out of the the tax shelter years. Obviously, that's pretty much over by 1983. But I think CBC had money, and there's probably government money based on a certain subject of filmmaking that had to be like you know canadian heroes or something like that and they're like oh who do we and it was like okay ned hanlon like it feels like such a a flippant decision and then they're like well fox is willing to like put up some money if we get a big name and they're like well we can't afford a big name but there's francis ford coppola's nephew so like (laughs) let's fly him up and then yeah i can't imagine like well there's also like there's it's kind of even a conspiracy uh at the time uh, but this, so you might have noticed that uh, at the end of the movie, it's dedicated to the memory of a lot of people. And I one didn't of the people, notice that. Okay. oh yeah, so it says it's it's dedicated to a couple people's memories. And one of the people's memories who it's dedicated to is uh, a Canadian director John Trent, who died in a car accident, and he was apparently prepping this Ned Hanlon film, uh, okay. um, and he died very suddenly. Uh, in this car accident with his son who was a sportsman himself mm. but he did like death dream and stuff he's mm-hmm. kind of like related to a lot of producing and directing in the early 80s so anyway it, the, like the i will say like contemporaneous reviews tend to cite that this was supposed to be john Trent's movie and isn't and what is on screen is likely a pale imitation yeah. of what john Trent would have planned okay that makes sense this is all yeah. coming together like the puzzle pieces or you know because there's not a ton <laughs> on this film written like there's a ton on no. Nicolas cage films there's people who have whole podcasts dedicated to watching every Nicolas cage one by one and this one always gets left off i, I find yeah. it very rare that people have seen boy in blue even though it's, it's oh, yeah. actually on blu-ray and we have it on hollywood suite yeah and i want to recommend people to watch this on hollywood suite. honestly i, mean, it's, I think it's worth just a watch. to see a yeah. canadian sports history even this point in canadian history short of anne of green gables is not 19th a whole, century a yeah yeah Damn. honestly there were moments where i was having a lot of fun watching just how intense nicholas cage is because this is pre like intense intense nicholas cage like he again he doesn't phone this film in even though for some no. reason he decided not to grow a mustache he is a man who acts with his facial hair so i am unclear why he was not okay with that and i feel cheated i i think that there's this there there comes and goes eras of mustaches being considered a little gay uh, and i wonder uh, if that's uh because everyone else in this film has a mustache except <laughs> nicholas cage 
an impressive mustache. Maybe yeah. if they'd given a roll to his pet octopus, he would have agreed. There's it's True. there's water. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of wistful boat looking. And I feel like there's plenty of drinking games to be had here. Anytime someone looks wistfully at a boat, you take a shot. Anytime someone has weird sex wearing a pinafore, you take a shot. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the way yeah. to go. I loved uh, Cam. I know when you when you watch a film on your Instagram, you always kind of post, you log it and say that, you mm-hmm. know, like a one sentence review. And when you did this the other night, someone i don't know who was like my dad was a stable boy in that film and my boyfriend was like everyone's dad was a stable boy in that." (laughs) i think i replied a whole lot of stables in this movie it'll be hard for me to narrow down your dad so funny my dad was a stable boy in boy in blue and then i know someone who is very close to hollywood suite on our board a very um influential person in the film industry was a location scout on this film in the beginning of his career. It seemed like the show really employed a lot of people. So I will give it that. Like, there's a huge... I mean, it's probably a hell of an undertaking to shoot boats. Yeah. You know? Well, even the background performers. There are so many background performers in this. Like, I will give it that, like, although it looks like a movie coming out of the 80s Canada in the way we think of Canadian films, which is inaccurate, um, Mm -hmm. it, it definitely looks like there was money spent. Like, at no point does it feel like someone was just like, let's just throw two sticks together and see what happens. We'll make a movie. Like, it's not that. And if if it wasn't for Heritage Minutes, I don't think it would have that corny Canada feel either. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, other than, like, people are playing Canadian, so you can't really fault them on accents and old-timiness. But I think, yeah, the problem is... I actually looked to see if it was the same cinematographer on Heritage Minutes because I'm like, why does it? Why does this feel so much like a Heritage Minute? But yeah, there is know. a Ned Hanlon Heritage Minute officially, right? Mm-hmm. I I think so. I, I tried know. to look it up. There's at least a sculling one about yeah. the Canadian sculling. I don't but know if there know. is a specific. How is there? If there isn't, how is there not one on that? I Hanlon? mean, all you need to know about Ned. My favorite Ned Hanlon fact is there is a Toronto, New South Wales, because Ned Hanlon was so popular in Australia because he came a lot to do sculling competitions. That's really? insane. That's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. Na- named in honor of a uh, local hero, Ned Hanlon. And like, ha- correct me if I'm wrong, Hanlon's, uh, Hanlon's Beach is the clothing optional beach. That is correct. Oh, yes. yes. That's a yeah. nice, yes. uh, <laughs> nice legacy. Yeah. I actually would like some sort of clothing optional thing named for me, possibly a tea party. I mean, considering Nicolas Cage is basically clothing optional throughout this entire film, and keep in mind this is an era where women didn't show their ankles, and he's just topless the entire film. In front of her. He does it to shock people. (laughs) He loves being topless. At one point he goes to beat up a Harvard man, and he like rips off his ratty sweater, and he's like, get up, Harvard man, and he starts like, <laughs> that was a very good Nicolas Cage. Get up, Harvard man! Can you play that soundbite? Uh, of course, I it can. It might have been a Yale man. I, I'm not. Sure I think it's Yale. I think, I think he's Harvard pissed man. about. No, no. I think he's pissed about Yale. He seems like Yale's a Yale, a, Yale is funner to yell than Harvard is. Harvard man. We'll just have to watch it again, guys. Well, when COVID, you know, when the theaters open up, presumably the first screening I'm doing because oh <laughs> I've already booked it. So. Well, you've created quite the thirst trap. Everybody's ready. Everybody's thirsty. So yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah. A lot of people uh, had questions because the trailer was, you know, all pretty lesser known Nicolas Cage ones. But uh, this one, they were like, what is that film? <laughs> 
that's uh, I think that's probably the best place to leave it, as it is always thinking of Nicolas Cage as a thirst trap and not as an utter maniac as we know him today. Allegedly, I'm not going to get sued <laughs> over that. Cameron Maitland, thank you once again. Uh, thanks, Becky. I, I don't know. Very inspirational episode. <laughs> Lots of Canadian stuff. Uh, both yeah. Cam and I are uh, Canadian film uh I wouldn't say aficionados, but like we have seen many. <laughs> yeah. I've seen over 300 of them. And you know what? These are a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's. I think it's a good starting point for people to be like, go watch some Canadian film. It's good for you. It's good for you. Good sure. for your country. Be a patriot. Um, Alicia Fletcher, my uh, my bi, I guess your bi-national friend, my bi-national mm-hmm. friend. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. I would like to state that I have a very different opinion of Nicolas Cage than you do. <laughs> Just to make them, set the record straight. I totally. don't believe he's a maniac. Really? I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. Just a little. My, minor me. Uh, eccentric? Because he has money? Eccentric? Oh, he's eccentric. Okay. Sure. Great. But as long uh, as we're both I, I understand. There's a method to his madness, and I even see the method in this insane film. <laughs> I think that is the perfect place to leave it. All right. Join us again next week where we look at two movies that could be considered the new American Gothic. And both of them star Dennis Hopper on a comeback hot streak. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shape the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.